Before we get into this episode, we have a quick favor to ask you. If you love our show, please scroll down to the review section of your favorite podcast platform and leave us a five-star rating. If you have a few more seconds, please also leave us a review telling us what you like most about our show. We read every single one of these and we appreciate them so much. This will also help us grow and get into the ears of those who love true crime and food as much as you do. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You're listening to Unsavory, where true crime meets food. Hi, everyone. I'm Sarah. And I'm Becca. And you're listening to Unsavory. Today's story has been requested multiple times from our listeners. Most recently, we got an email from Sarah Purcell suggesting that we cover this, and she actually even included some sources, which was so nice. Thank you, Sarah. Yes, thank you for making our job that much easier. It really helped. And I was actually really excited to see that suggestion again because I was like, okay, perfect. I'll cover this. This story is one of those stories that honestly seems like it's completely made up. It's straight out of a sci-fi film. But Biosphere 2 really happened, and I'm going to tell you about it today. Becca, do you know anything at all about Biosphere 2? Basically nothing. I know that it was an experiment of some sort, and I believe it was on, like, climate change. Honestly, that's pretty accurate. Biosphere 2 was basically an epic science experiment combined with Big Brother... So for two years, eight people lived inside an airtight, giant glass structure that was filled with realistic replicas of Earth's ecosystems with the goal of living in a way that was completely self-sufficient for all human needs, including food, water, and oxygen. And it didn't exactly go as planned. Uh, I'm getting 
love is blind slash survivor vibes here. And I'm already so invested. (laughs) If you know, you know. And if you don't know, you're about to find out. (laughs) Are you ready? Let's do it. The information in this podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're interested in medical nutrition therapy or personalized nutrition advice, please talk to a physician or registered dietitian in your area. If you have a history of disordered eating, be advised that nutrition details will be discussed and take the steps you need to protect your recovery journey. All the citations and relevant links for anything mentioned in this episode will be in our show notes on our website, unsavorypodcast.com. This podcast may contain coarse language, mature subject matter, and content of a violent or disturbing nature. Listener discretion is advised. This is an independently produced podcast. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can sign up as a donor through the Patreon link in our bio. If you could rate, review, follow, and share our show with your true crime and food-loving friends, that would really help us out, and we will be forever grateful. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Shout out to my sources for today's episode, which are all listed in the show notes at unsavorypodcast.com. I used an article by Carl Zimmer in the New York Times, one by Steve Rose in The Guardian, and a first-person account from Mark Nelson for Dartmouth Alumni Magazine, and he was actually a member of the original Biospherian crew. Our story starts many years before the Biosphere 2 experiment officially began. The idea for Biosphere 2 was born on Synergia Ranch in New Mexico in the early 1970s. The ranch was an eco-village founded in 1969 by John Allen and Marie Harding, and it was home to free spirits, theater kids, and those interested in a more eco-friendly way of living. Those that lived on the ranch planted trees, grew organic gardens, started small businesses, and eventually a nonprofit called Institute of Ecotechnics. The ranch is actually still operational today, and according to their website, Synergia Ranch is a center for innovation. It provides an environment that supports creative individuals in the fields of ecology, biospherics, engineering, architecture, wastewater gardens, sustainable forestry, orchardry, book publishing, cuisine, fine arts, healing arts, theater, writing, painting, and poetry. Wow, what a well-rounded set of activities. I know. They really do it all. John Allen, one of the founders of Synergia Ranch, is a fascinating guy. He studied anthropology and history at Northwestern and Oklahoma universities. Then he studied writing at Stanford University. And then he served as a machinist in the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. He then earned a metallurgical mining degree 
with honors from the Colorado School of Mines. He also worked as a factory worker in a meatpacking plant and organized the Meatpackers Union on the south side of Chicago. In 1963, Allen went on a two-year journey around the world to study how indigenous cultures live in harmony with their ecosystems. And in his travels, he went to Africa, Uzbekistan, Afghanistan, Turkey, India, Nepal, Burma, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, Vietnam, Australia, Japan, and the Philippines. He's well-traveled. He certainly is. And his travels gave him a great appreciation for both science and art. And when he returned to San Francisco, he co-founded the Theater of All Possibilities. This is a theater company that operated out of Synergia Ranch, and they actually toured throughout the United States and around the world for almost two decades, so from the late 1960s to the late 80s. Often, they gave performances that had some element of ecological advocacy built in, um, including performances in the Australian Outback, the Peruvian Amazon, and the Sacred Forest in Osogbo, Nigeria. So John Allen really did it all, but one of his primary interests had always been ecology and finding a way for humans to live harmoniously with Earth's systems in a more sustainable way. In fact, most of the people who hung around Synergia Ranch over the years believed that the people of Earth had only about 40 years left to really change their tune and start preserving the Earth, or they were headed straight for the next mass extinction. John Allen was quoted in the New York Times saying, Western civilization isn't simply dying. It's dead. We are probing into its ruins to take whatever is useful for the building of the new civilization to replace it. But he wasn't just wallowing in doom and gloom. He was actually taking action. Since the 1970s, he had been drawing diagrams of a huge scientific and social experiment that he called Spaceship Earth City an idea that would eventually evolve into Biosphere 2. The vision for Biosphere 2 was that it would fuse technology and ecology to create an enclosed system that would be completely self-sustaining and that humans could potentially inhabit in case the world ever became uninhabitable. (laughs) As you can imagine, a project of this scale is not cheap and funding was originally an issue, but... Biosphere 2 would get its big break from oil billionaire-turned-hippie Ed Bass, who was living on Synergia Ranch and felt inspired by John Allen's idea. $250 million later, the team from the Institute of Ecotechnics, including John Allen, set out to actually build Biosphere 2. So Ed Bass donated all of that money? Yes, he did. Generous guy. I know. You know what they say, make friends with oil billionaire hippies. (laughs) Do you have any idea why it's called Biosphere 2? Well, I'm assuming like a biosphere is like an ecosystem, right? So it sounds like they were trying to make their own like self-sustaining ecosystem in this like glass structure that you, you mentioned, right? Yes, good guess. Pretty close. Two implies that it's not actually the first biosphere. So biosphere one is actually (laughs) Earth. Um, And biosphere two is like the backup plan. I was emphasizing on the biosphere part, not the two. (laughs) So Alan and the Institute of Ecotechnics core team created a new corporation for this 
Venture, and they called it Space Biospheres Ventures. And they hired over 200 scientists and specialists, engineers, and contractors to make it possible. And kind of surprisingly, it wasn't difficult to hire that many people because at the start, people were really inspired by this bold idea and the possibility of really being able to make a difference in the health of the planet and the future of mankind. Man had just walked on the moon about a decade before, and awareness about climate change was growing. So I think the timing was right in terms of generating the support of both the scientific community and the public. And there was a ton of public buzz around the science experiment. John Allen had the vision, Ed Bass had the funds, and many brilliant minds all came together to collaborate towards the same common goal. Basically, to create a second Earth. So to clarify, all this was being done to see if we could be more like self-sufficient and less reliant on things like oil? So yeah, there was an awareness that Earth's ecosystems were being unsustainably exploited to maintain human lifestyles, and they wanted to demonstrate a more sustainable way of living but specifically within a closed environment to see if something like this in space would ever be possible. Ah. If they had to leave Biosphere 1, like, could they make a Biosphere 2? Interesting. So interesting. Construction took place over four years from 1987 to 1991. And when Biosphere 2 was finally ready, it was breathtaking. Photos are on our Insta. If you don't know what this place looks like, you really don't want to miss it. Go check it out. The beautiful, sprawling glass structure was located in Oracle, Arizona, at the base of the Santa Catalina Mountains. The structure itself is a mix of glass-paneled pyramids and domes. And due to the fact that the goal of Biosphere 2 was to be completely self-sufficient and independent of Biosphere 1, the Earth... The windows had to be perfectly airtight so that air exchange would be almost non-existent. During the day, the hot Arizona sun would cause the air inside the structure to expand, and then when it cooled at night, the air contracted. So the structure had large diaphragms called lungs that would allow for these volume changes throughout the day. And of course, it's not like you can just crack a window when things get too hot, so heating and cooling needed to be supplied through a closed-loop system. And there was an energy center that provided electricity and hot and cold water. And I'm not an engineer, but all of this sounds pretty dang impressive to me. This is probably how like all buildings are made and we're just clueless. But yes, it Mm -hmm. does sound super cool, especially the the lungs you mentioned. (laughs) You're probably right. All our engineer (laughs) listeners are just like, yeah, so what? Side note, have you seen Glass Onion? No, I haven't. Oh, you absolutely should. It's... Very good. But it's reminding me a bit of the glass onion structure, like what you're describing. Really? Okay, cool. And if anyone is actually interested in the details about the structure and how it was built, there are tons of details available online that just kind of made my eyes glaze over. (laughs) But if infrastructure is your thing, I'm sure it's very interesting for the right people. Definitely. Here's the stuff that I find amazing. So contained within the walls of Biosphere 2 were seven biome areas, including a rainforest, an ocean with a coral reef, 
a mangrove wetland, a savanna grassland, a fog desert, and two human biomes, including a 27,000-square-foot agricultural system and a human habitat with living spaces, labs, and workshops. Wow, this sounds so cool. How, how big was this thing? I feel like it's a lot to fit into a space. It's definitely pretty big. Apparently, it was just over three acres or about three football fields. So quite a bit of space in there. But when you when I think about the amount of ecosystems they crammed in there, I'm surprised it wasn't even bigger. Yeah. And maybe you mentioned this, but is it still standing? Yes. And it's active Ooh. in a way. More on this later. Okay. So on September 26, 1991, the first mission began with the goal of sending the Biospherians in and not letting them out for two whole years. The Biospherian crew was comprised of four men and four women, including a medical doctor and researcher, Roy Walford, who was actually a leading advocate of calorie restriction for life extension and health improvement. And seven others who were not scientists, but were heavily involved in the design and planning for Biosphere 2. So we have Jane Pointer, Tabor McCallum, Mark Nelson, Sally Silverstone, Abigail Alling, Mark Van Thielo, and Linda Lee. Can you imagine signing up to remain inside a building for two years with the same eight people? With a man who believes in calorie restriction for health? Absolutely not. <laughs> Nightmare. <laughs> Such a nightmare. Were any of these participants married? I know some of them have the same last name. So I tried to find out more details about like the personal biographies, the ages, if they have kids, if they're married, but there actually wasn't a lot out there. Huh. I do know that Jane Pointer and Tabor McCallum were a couple and are still together. Oh. So there's some tea. But Age-wise, I actually don't know how old they were when they went into Biosphere 2, but they all look like they range from like late 20s to mid-30s, maybe early 40s. Okay. Two years is such a long time to just be ducking out for a while. Especially if they have family or anything like that. So once the crew was sealed inside, the experiment started right away and the crew got to work. And when I say work, there was a lot to do, but I mostly mean growing their own food. According to Biospherian Mark Nelson, about 25% of each day was spent farming and the rest was divided between research and maintenance, writing reports, cooking, which actually took a lot of their time, biomanagement, and animal husbandry. So the total for all food-related work took about 45% of the crew time, with tasks including the rough and fine processing, animal care, and cooking. Just to give you a little bit of perspective... It did take about two to three weeks to make a cup of coffee from the rainforest's coffee trees. Wow, I'll bet that coffee tasted pretty dang good. Yeah, truly an unbeatable coffee moment. Growing nutritious food was a top priority, and yet not one of the Biospherians had come from a farming background, which seems like a little bit of an oversight. And almost right away, hunger became a constant companion for them. They did have a small supply of food to get them started and help them along the way, but it would only be a couple months before that ran out, and if they couldn't grow enough food, they wouldn't be able to survive the two years. But do you think that they would actually let them die? No, I definitely don't think that they would actually have let them die, and it'll come up later, but like people on the outside 
and inside, actually, the biosphere were concerned and wanted to intervene. So, no, they wouldn't have let them die, but um, the integrity of the experiment was really important to some people as well. Gotcha. Biosphere 2 was designed to produce a nutritionally adequate diet, according to the mission's doctor, Roy Walford. But if you remember, Dr. Walford was one of the leading advocates for calorie restriction for life extension. This is a theory that has weak evidence and is controversial even today and would, of course, depend on the individual and what sort of caloric intake they had at baseline. There are tons of variables, and we do know that caloric restriction is definitely not for everyone and can have physical and psychological and social impacts, including feeling out of control around food, mood disturbances, and weight loss. Mm -hmm. So the Biospherians were hungry, but they were surrounded by food. If you included the herbs, there were 86 varieties of crops grown in Biosphere 2 with the most important ones being grains, starches, beans, peanuts, vegetables, and fruit. They also had chickens and goats and pigs. They grew azola, which is like a little water fern that grew in the rice tanks and paddy fields. And that was a source of high-protein feed for the tilapia fish and was also harvested as chicken food. And then there were a lot of insects in Biosphere 2 as well for many reasons, including pest control, but... Some of the insects, like pill bugs and cockroaches, were also used for animal feed. So were they told what to do? Though I feel like if I was put in the situation, I wouldn't know where to start, especially with something like grain. Yeah, I think they had expert advice throughout the entire thing. They had a lot of strong minds working on this project and that were also invested in this project project. So I think they had contact with their management team and advisors. And when I tell you about the problem solving they did in just a second, you'll see that they got pretty creative. So I think it's I think they definitely had experts weighing in almost daily. Okay. Growing food in Biosphere 2 was a major challenge. <laughs> so there were two growing seasons, one in the winter and one in the summer. Some of the primary challenges included variation in temperatures and the amount of sunlight all things that were beyond the Biospherian's control. And as luck would have it, the two-year period that the experiment was running actually had an unusually cloudy autumn and winter weather patterns for the entire two years. And so they were using, like, the sun for all of their crops and, and stuff. Yes. Okay. Yes. So they didn't have any yes, they were. artificial lighting? Not at this point. Okay. They also faced many pest problems, including the two-spotted spider mite, broad mite, thrip, mealybug, aphid, powdery mildew, root knot nematode, pill bug, and cockroach. <laughs> they tried various methods to control the pest problem, including spraying crops with vegetable oil, but none of the methods actually proved effective, and the oil spray actually made the crops more attractive to the cockroaches, so that backfired. Okay, that seems a bit obvious, though, spraying <laughs> oil on crops. It's like salad dressing. Yeah. <laughs> They're preparing. It's appetizing. Yeah. They also tried pruning, washing with water, and spraying with soap and sulfur sprays. They experimented with different humidity levels, which would reduce some pests, but then create the perfect breeding grounds for others. They also dealt with root infection, so root-not nematode, which was controlled through crop rotation. It was 
almost nonstop the challenges. So clearly the Biospherians, with their limited agricultural knowledge, had a lot to learn, and combined with their constantly rumbling tummies, maybe you can see where this is going. Hunger makes you do silly things. Overall, the Biospherians produced approximately 80% of the food for the full eight-man crew during the entire two-year mission, supplemented with some provisions that had been provided before entering. The most productive crops were wheat, starches, mostly sweet potatoes, but also taro, white potato, and green banana. Legumes, hyacinth beans were the most successful, but also some kidney beans, pinto beans, and soybeans. Vegetables like leafy greens, carrots, cabbages, beets, squashes, uh, cucumber, eggplants, and peppers. And fruit, by far the most productive being bananas, but papaya also produced very well, and guava and figs did okay too. So you can see that there's actually pretty good variety here. But fat actually made up under 10% of their average intake, and typically fat should make up about 20 to 35% based on the acceptable macronutrient distribution ranges. And fat does so much for making us feel like full and satisfied and it makes things taste so much better. So did they like not eat any of the animals or animal protein? The diet was largely vegetarian, but after a while, two crew members found that they had become sensitive to eating small amounts of meat and the crew opted to stop eating meat altogether, which I found Mm. interesting because The one article, and it was like the study, the main study I referenced, it just said they became sensitive. And I'm like, what does that mean? Sensitive, like butchering animals was hard or like, was it bothering their stomach? Initially, I thought you meant like it was bothering their stomach, but I could see it being very challenging. Out of eight people, what are the odds that one of those people is going to want to slaughter animals? Yeah, slaughter and butcher and do everything from scratch. And then... Yeah, I don't even know what their fridge situation was. I still have questions. (laughs) So many questions. But they did include eggs, cheese, and milk. So they made cheese? Oh, they made cheese. They, it's really impressive. I'm going to tell you a little bit about like how they process some of their food in a bit, but they got really creative with their ingredients. Wow, I'm impressed. (laughs) I know. The diet overall provided less than 2,000 calories per day in the first year and about 2,200 cows per day towards the end of the experiment. And that's generally estimated to be enough for a sedentary adult to maintain their weight. But similar to the Minnesota starvation experiment episode, the Biospherians were maintaining a very high amount of activity, including daily physical labor. And they would have required much more calories to maintain their weight. And while they were experiencing hunger, the doctor that was with them was also pro-calorie restriction and was likely explaining that their feelings of hunger were good for their health. He actually referred to the diet as a healthy starvation diet, which sounds just terrible. Yeah, he'd be the first to go, just voted off the biosphere. Yeah, gone. (laughs) The crew's ability to adapt to the calorie-limited diet differed greatly between the members. Many of them pined for their favorite foods like sweets and pizza. Some felt hungrier than others, and some relief actually came around six months into the experiment when the peanut plants became productive and the crew was actually able to increase their calorie and fat intake. 
Mark Nelson later described that he sometimes got so hungry he would eat peanuts with their shells on. And he also shared that each crew member ate about one pound of sweet potatoes a day. I would be so sick of sweet potatoes. Right now that sounds good, but I haven't had sweet potatoes in a while. (laughs) (laughs) All the crew members commented on the fact that after the first few months, they found that their taste buds actually adapted to the diet and that food that was initially very bland started to seem more tasty. And they were able to perceive and taste the natural sugars in foods like fruit, sweet potato, and beet a lot more than they were before. Socially, cooking and presenting food became an important part of everyday life. The standard of cooking and the quality of the meal served would have an effect on the vibes and the mood of the crew. And it became almost a competitive issue among the crew to see who could produce the best meals. (laughs) So we went from an episode of Survivor to an episode of Top Chef. Yeah, basically, they got really creative. They made banana and bean stew. Sounds unique. Potato and tomato cakes with salsa, Mm. beet soups, fruit chutneys, and homemade banana wine. They used figs and citrus to sweeten dishes, and they even had chili duels to see who could produce the spiciest dish. They valued presentation and used colorful fruits and vegetables to add visual appeal to their dishes. And you can actually see on the Insta I'm going to post a picture of a cake that they made, and it's pretty impressive. They produced everything from scratch, so butchering, drying, refining foods into their edible forms. And homemade pizza was an extra special treat as growing and processing the ingredients took four months. Wow. One, I know, probably tasted so good. One even made a cheesecake with just goat's milk, no sugar or eggs. So just a slab of goat cheese. Yeah, I guess so. And maybe because their taste buds were changing, they were <laughs> they thought it tasted sweet. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I'm so impressed by their like cheese making abilities. I know. There's this person on TikTok. Have you ever seen her? She makes her own cheese. Like she makes everything from scratch. I'll send you a video. Please do. But yeah, she always like, she'll make like a pizza that looks so good, but she makes the mozzarella from scratch. She makes the dough from scratch. It's crazy. Wow. And she's got like five kids. I don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't even have the time for that. And I have no kids. (laughs) I know. One positive takeaway was that all of the crew members described an intense connection to the food growing, harvesting, and cooking process that would last the rest of their lives. Overall, the Biospherians did lose about 16% of their body weight while in Biosphere 2. They dropped weight rapidly throughout the first year and then stabilized and regained in the second year when food production started to become more steady. Medical markers indicated the health of the crew during the two years was actually pretty good. They showed improvement in some health indicators, such as lower blood cholesterol and blood pressure. And there was also some research that showed the Biospherians' bodies became more efficient at extracting essential nutrients from the foods that they were eating as an adaptation to the low-calorie, high-nutrient diet. Mystical metabolism. Yes, mystical metabolism. But... They were hungry, and with hunger often comes mental instability and irritability, also known as hanger. And the Biospherians were in a very socially unique and challenging situation. And I actually haven't mentioned this yet, but one of the parts that I find so weird about this experiment is that 
there was almost a theatrical component in that Biosphere 2 was basically a tourist destination. There was a lot of buzz about this, and people would actually go visit and look through the windows and watch them. What? This is so weird. (laughs) So could the participants in the Biosphere see the spectators watching them? Yeah, there's pictures. I'll post, I'll add one to the Instagram post too, because there's pictures of them just like waving at kids who are waving, who are right on the other side of the glass. That is so strange. I know. I know. And that's why I wish, like I, a lot of the sources, you know, they describe the science, they describe the structure, they describe the food, but I'm like, tell me about the drama. Like I want to know, or the, like socially, like what was it like to be in the biosphere with people watching you from the outside. It's just so unique. Yeah, and the impacts that would have on your psyche just being watched constantly, probably. Because they probably had video footage too, right? I'm assuming. uh, Yes, definitely. It's all throughout the documentary. Wow. Yeah. So beyond the food-related challenges of the mission, other obstacles quickly arose. Just two weeks into the mission, Jane Pointer got her hand caught in a rice thresher and lost the tip of one of her fingers. Mm. And Dr. Walford was able to stitch it up, but then later decided that she needed to actually seek outside medical attention. It would later be revealed that when she returned from the hospital, she brought a duffel bag of supplies in with her. Mm. And this was supposed to be a completely closed-off experiment. So when the media found out that she had snuck the bag of supplies in, they claimed the experiment was invalidated. Some researchers agreed. After all, a duffel bag of supplies wouldn't be an option for an actual self-sustaining colony on Mars. (laughs) For sure. But desperate times. And if she was feeling a bit of desperation, I do kind of understand why she did it. Yeah, absolutely. And like, it's two weeks in, like maybe there's some things came up that people weren't prepared for. Mm -hmm. I feel like It's kind of okay, but I can also see that it would invalidate the science experiment. Yeah. And on top of that, this is one of the worst things, but the oxygen levels decreased much faster than anticipated alongside a corresponding buildup of carbon dioxide. Oh, boy. So, yeah. So Earth's atmosphere is about 21% oxygen, but inside the biosphere, it fell to about 14.2%. Mark Nelson recalled that simply walking around the biosphere felt like they were climbing a mountain, and he said he could barely finish a sentence without feeling winded. So now they're hungry and they can't breathe properly. I feel like that's mm-hmm. probably not good for the longevity of their lives. Yeah, definitely. I mean, probably not for the their longevity, but also for their immediate, like the time they're there. How miserable does that sound? Pretty miserable. <laughs> Understandably, morale deteriorated. Living under biosphere conditions was a a challenge at the best of times. Between the hunger, the oxygen deprivation, and being under constant observation by tourists and students on field trips, tensions grew within the biosphere. The crew split into two main camps, one that was in favor of bringing in more food and oxygen to keep the experiment going without further unnecessary suffering, And the other camp that was in favor of keeping the integrity of the experiment and not seeking outside support, no matter what the cost. So the psychopaths. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Yeah, I would be, I know I would be on the team that's like, let us breathe and let us have a snack. Absolutely. 100%. (laughs) 
But the outside world could clearly see that the Biospherians were struggling, and eventually some food and oxygen was brought in. Mark Nelson wrote that people started laughing like crazy and running around. I felt like I'd been 90 years old, and now I was a teenager again. I realized I hadn't seen anybody running for months. But while the team rejoiced, the outside world started to turn on the project and dismiss it as poor science. Poor science or not, the experiment ran to completion. A full two years from September 26, 1991 to September 26, 1993. Some say this experiment did exactly what it was supposed to do. Allow for troubleshooting and for the biospherians to learn from their mistakes. But many scientists and ecologists do look back at Biosphere 2 as a colossal failure. After all, it was unable to generate breathable air and adequate food for eight humans, despite a $250 million investment. Mm -hmm. So after the the failure of Mission 1, John Allen and his team were fired and allegedly escorted away from the premises by federal marshals, which is very dramatic, and a new CEO was brought in by helicopter. Wasn't this John's project, though? Yeah, somehow he got vetoed. Hmm. I'm pretty sure the f- <laughs> Ed Bass, the funder, had something to do with that. Oh, okay. But you'll never believe the new CEO was Steve Bannon. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that Steve Bannon, the same guy who served as the White House's chief strategist for Donald Trump. No way. I I think this should tell you everything you need to know about Biosphere 2's second attempt. (laughs) So after Biosphere 2's first mission, new management was brought in, extensive research and system improvements were undertaken, including sealing the concrete to prevent the uptake of carbon dioxide to help with the air quality. And a second mission began on March 6th, 1994, with Steve Bannon at the helm, and a plan run of only 10 months this time, not the full two years. The crew was made up of Norberto Alvarez-Romo, John Druitt, Matt Finn, Pascal Maslin, Charlotte Godfrey, Rodrigo Romo, and Talak Mahato. And in some ways, this mission was more successful because learning from the mistakes and growing pains of the first crew, the second crew was actually able to achieve adequate and efficient food production. Mm. However, due to the untimely firing of John Allen and previous management, some members of the previous Biospherian crew were not happy. So only one month after the launch of Mission 2, on April 5th, 1994, at 3 a.m., two of the original crew members, Abigail Alling and Mark Van Thilo, approached Biosphere 2 and opened one of the double airlock doors. They also opened three emergency exits and smashed five panes of glass. Alling and Van Thilo truly believed it was their ethical duty to try and end the experiment, with Alling saying she feared for the safety of the new crew. Hmm. During this time, some might call it a vandalism, <laughs> about 10% of the biosphere's air was exchanged with the outside. So that definitely impacted the results of the experiment as well. Right. However, the mission did continue on for a couple more months until it was ended on September 6, 1994. So all the drama is almost done, but just to finish it off, let's get back to Steve Bannon. Alling and Van Thilo actually filed a civil lawsuit against Space Biosphere Ventures and Steve Bannon for breach of contract for the way that the team had been let go after Mission 1. 
They also alleged verbally abusive behavior by Bannon and proposed that his actual goal was to destroy the experiment. At the end of the trial, the court ruled in favor of Alling and Van Thilo and ordered Space Biosphere's Ventures to pay them $600,000. Wow. They also ordered the plaintiffs to pay the company just over $40,000 for the damage that they had caused to Biosphere 2. Just take that out of the 600K. Wasn't Steve Bannon like a investment banker or something? Yep. What, what gave him the authority to, to take this position? It's such a curious decision. I really don't know. Bizarre. Totally. It's the weirdest twist to an already almost unbelievable story. <laughs> I know. Such a plot twist. So you might be wondering what happened to Biosphere 2. Well, it still exists. It's owned by the University of Arizona, which means that the facility is likely being used for some actual top-notch research these days. Some of the projects ongoing at Biosphere 2 include Landscape Evolution Observatory, which is a project that uses sensors to monitor how soil develops. The Lunar Greenhouse, which seeks to understand how to grow vegetables on the moon or Mars and a vertical farming project. They also still have the tropical rainforest and the ocean reef lab. Well, I think we should go visit. Honestly, I'm so down, and I could use a trip to Arizona these days. <laughs> that would be nice. Despite the fact that Biosphere 2 became somewhat of a joke in the science world and is largely recognized as a failure, the story itself offers a lot of points for reflection. It's pretty amazing that a group of inspired and motivated young theater hippies living at Synergia Ranch were able to pull off an experiment of this scale. Impressive for sure. But I think the purpose of this experiment is still a bit lost on me. <laughs> like, was it cool? <laughs> Absolutely. But was it necessary to science? It's not like it was like fully self-sustaining and they could mm -hmm. reproduce this on another planet like you mentioned at the beginning. They were using outside oxygen to some degree, right? And like light sources, since it was like all windows? Yes. Yeah, light sources. But the goal for the oxygen was that it would all come from the inside. So like all of the the foliage and stuff inside was providing the oxygen? Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. And for Mission 2, they did have artificial light, which is why the food production went so much smoother. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's really hard for me to kind of comprehend why they would even do the study if they already have aspects from the outside world severely impacting the day to day. Cause that kind of takes yeah. away from like the integrity of the experiment. It's almost like they tried to do way too much. Yeah. Like if they had just focused in on one part of this experiment, but like they tried to do it all, they tried to recreate Earth. Yeah, <laughs> it's so complex. And it's like they had this idea that was just way too big for science to actually do for them. You know what I mean? And they yeah. didn't have maybe the science background to know how unrealistic it was. But And maybe start with like a, a week or something. I don't know why we need to jump right into a two-year experiment. Yeah. Or just like allow for supplies to be delivered as needed. And then when you do the next mission you know what supplies you need to bring in the first place. Yeah, no, for sure. I do think it's super interesting to like see the human impact the study had, especially when it comes to things like people watching them. Mm -hmm. But one question that I still have is whether there were any biosphere romances. I know. 
<laughs> I'm dying to know, truly. Any biosphere love children? <laughs> and I mean, yeah, a lot of people do see this experiment as a colossal failure, an expensive failure. But another main takeaway for me, even just as I was doing this research, was how challenging the actual food production was. Mm-hmm. And they had put a lot of thought into the species and the ecosystems that the biospherians were actually working with to make it possible. And it was still so hard for them to sustain themselves. And it was only eight of them with a huge investment. Right. It just made me reflect on how disconnected many of us are, myself included, from the process of food production, from our farmers, from food processors, and the amount of work that actually goes into making a meal. I'm definitely more appreciative of my morning cup of coffee, which takes me five minutes to brew instead of the two to three weeks that the Biospherians had to deal with. Absolutely. Super appreciative for how easy we have it. I mean, it is still such an interesting research experiment. It's probably the one of the most interesting ones I've ever heard about. <laughs> and it's probably not one that would be replicated today unless there was a film crew, I guess. <laughs> Biosphere 3? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Biosphere 3D. Ooh, Ooh. I'm there. <laughs> okay, that was lame. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that was such a great story. Thank you so much, Sarah. That was awesome. My pleasure. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Unsavory. You can find all of the references and materials used to put this episode together in our show notes at unsavorypodcast.com. This is an independently produced podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would rate, review, follow, and share our show with your true crime and food-loving friends. This is the best way that you can support us for free. If you'd like to donate to our podcast, you can sign up as a donor through our Patreon link in our bio. For more information, follow us on Instagram at unsavorypodcast. If you have an idea for an episode or segment, email us at unsavorypod at gmail.com. This podcast was recorded and edited by Jeff Devine. Learn more at Jeff Devine Sound on Instagram. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.